Hello, this is Paul Lee, and welcome back to the Divided Families podcast. Um, today I'm here meeting for the first time a very special guest, Mrs. Mary Murakami, at her home in, uh, in Maryland. And it's a really timely um, occasion to have this interview because just a few days ago, uh, on February 19th, is the Day of Remembrance for uh, the Japanese-American community for Executive Order 9066, which led to the forced displacement of more than 120,000 Japanese-Americans, American citizens, who were displaced into internment camps uh, during World War II. So without further ado, uh, thank you so much, Mary, for being here. Well, thank you for asking me. Uh, could you please begin by sharing, uh, telling us a little bit about your family and your childhood? Well, my uh, full name is Mary Tamaki Murakami. I was born on June 9, 1927 in Los Angeles, California. And I was living in San Francisco, Japanese town on December 7, 1941. I am the middle child. I have a brother and sister above me and a brother and sister below me. We lived in Los Angeles. Uh, My father had the vegetable section of a store. In those days, back in the 30s, the stores were three separate sections and owned by three different owners. The vegetable section was the part my father owned. There was a grocery section. And the third section was groceries and other things. And uh, we had a comfortable life because we didn't realize that actually we were considered poor. But my father always had enough food to feed us. We lived in a white community. He would take us into the Los Angeles Japanese town so we could meet Japanese people. And so on weekends, we would visit friends in Japanese town. But growing up in Los Angeles, I only had uh, other type of friends. Most of them were white. In fact, I think that's the only race that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. And so it w- in this life, for me, moving to San Francisco was very important, not knowing that living in Japanese town would be a benefit for me. I would have Japanese friends and understand that they would even mix Japanese with English, which I felt was very strange in those days. Yeah. And then how how was it growing up uh, after you moved to San Francisco's Japantown? Uh, We had a complete change where all our neighbors were uh, Japanese or Japanese-Americans. We went to uh, schools 
that uh, had Japanese American uh, students and uh, since I lived in Japanese town the stores would blast uh, Japanese songs and Japanese military march songs so I learned the Japanese military march sounds before I even learned the American military march. Wow. And wow. so it was a total immersion before, which was very different from what I had grown up. I moved to San Francisco when I was about eight years old. Mm-hmm. And then if I... Uh, read correctly, you were 14 years old uh, in yes. the time of Pearl Harbor? On, uh, when Pearl Harbor happened on yeah. December 7th, I was 14. Yeah, and, and could you, if you remember uh, about your experience during that time, could you share a little bit about what you remember on that day, on, on, on that, December 7th? On that day, we were listening to the radio and uh, reading the Sunday paper. We only got the newspaper on Sundays and uh, the American newspaper. We had one sheet of the Nietzsche-Bay that we could read and that came to my parents. Uh, On December 7th, we uh, were stunned by the uh, information about Pearl Harbor, but we were, uh, my father had told us, and our family always had discussions at the dinner table of current events, and he felt that eventually Japan and the U.S. would go to war. Uh, He was at church that day, and we ran down to tell him to come home and listen to the radio because Pearl Harbor had happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, since he had believed there would be a war, we told him he was right. And he did not believe that the U.S. and Japan would ever fight, even if he thought of it from the current events that were happening. He said to us that the U.S. was too strong of a country for Japan to ever win a war. And so he did not believe that what we were saying until that evening when Post Street became very quiet. And Post Street is one of the main streets, so we knew it was different. So we looked out our window. We lived on the third floor. And so we could see everything. And we looked up from our block, within our block, we saw the U.S. Army soldiers. They were stationed uh, from one sidewalk to the other, blocking all cars from entering. 
and all people from entering Japanese town, and they were armed, and we thought their rifles were facing towards us. Mm-hmm. And that is when my father finally believed that we were at war, and he told us that it was going to be a very difficult time for us. And then on February 19th, Executive Order 9066 was posted. And, and how did your, how did life change for you and your family um, after the attack on Pearl Harbor? Well, until Executive Order 9066 was posted, mm-hmm. uh, things were very quiet. And we knew something was going to happen, but we didn't know what it was. Rumors were spreading through Japanese town. Uh, We continued life. We went to school. My father went to work. My sister was living in Palo Alto. She was working in a home. Uh, It was during the period of time, even if you were educated, you couldn't get a job, so she went to work in one of the families in Palo Alto. But everything changed when the executive order 9066 was posted. And uh, I saw the notice on the telephone poles near my house at Post in Laguna. Yeah. And that was the way the government continued to communicate with us. After that order was posted, things got pretty hectic because it said that we could only take what we could carry. Mm-hmm. And we had to get rid of everything. And these are some of the effects on my family while we were getting ready. Um, the curfew notices began to be posted and they first started in miles and so my sister could not go to work so she came home from Palo Alto and then as the miles got closer to my house then my father could no longer go to work and my brother couldn't go to the high school. But in the meantime, we had to get rid of all the furniture. Mm -hmm. But we noticed these men going through Japanese town and they were going from house to house. And what they were doing was buying your furniture and whatever you had to sell. But they wouldn't buy things individually, they bought things by the household. So my father sold seven rooms of furniture. Uh, But they came back the next day and they sold the piano in front of us for what they had paid my father for all the furniture. And eventually these men came to move the piano and it turned out to be the same men who had brought our piano into 
our house in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And then the notices also said we had to all get these shots before we went into camp, including like typhoid and smallpox. But on December 7th, uh, our doctor, who happened to be my nephew that my father had educated to go through medical school, he was picked up on December 7th. And that's why we knew the FBI was going through and picking up people. But we didn't find out uh, he was picked up until his um, man who worked for him uh, told us that uh, he had been picked up. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the FBI already had a list of people who they were picking up. And the reason why my father's nephew, we think one of the reasons is that he got a telegram the beginning of December saying everything was ready. So they assumed that it was because of the war. But my nephew was building a hospital in Japan and the telegram meant that the hospital was ready for him. And so eventually he was going to go back to Japan, but had nothing to do with the war. So when we were getting all these shots, the reason why I mentioned that is my brother, when we got the smallpox shot, his shot, um, after they injected the needles in his arm, his smallpox vaccination started to grow and it kept growing. And so my father uh, asked people what he should do. Mm-hmm. And so someone suggested putting a whiskey glass on top of the vaccination place so it would quit growing. So my father got the whiskey glass, which are these tiny glass things, and taped it on my brother's arm and the smallpox vaccination stopped wow, so it around the whisk- size of a whiskey glass. So he literally took a whisk- a glass of whiskey. Not and- a glass of whiskey, just a glass, yeah. not with whiskey in it. Wow. And that's how we solved it because we didn't oh. have a doctor because he was picked up on December 7th and then the typhoid shots were so powerful of our we were allergic to it or something but all of us all seven of us were so sick and running a temperature that we couldn't get out of bed but it was a series of shots so no one could eat um And so the next series of shots we got, my father cooked before we went to get our shot, and he put the food on the table, and sure enough, he said, who's ever able to get up from their shots could have something to eat. And another thing was that the rumors were spreading 
throughout Japanese towns. Some of them said that, you know, we were actually going to be taken to a desert and be killed. My parents didn't believe all that, but they did believe that the children would be put in one camp and the parents would be put in the other. So they went to a photographer and had their picture taken, mm-hmm. uh, five copies, and they gave each of us a copy of that picture so that in case we were separated. And at that time, they decided to tell us our family history. Um, So they sat us down and we heard for the first time that my older sister was my half-sister, that her mother had died in childbirth with the second child and they both died. My father went back to Japan and married my mother. But what was interesting to us five kids was there was a box of metal blocks that always traveled with us and it came from Los Angeles to San Francisco with us and it was uh, at that time we it was heavy and it was always stored in the closet and one time we had my younger brother get on top of my older brother Joe to reach the box, but he said it was too heavy to bring down, but he says there's writing on it. And it it was a box about 12 inches by eight inches. So it was a pretty big box. And we were told at that time, those were uh, Lily's mother's ashes. And uh, there was no way to take it to camp with us because it was too heavy. Mm-hmm. And Lily's mother was your family member? Lily was my older sister, ah, I who see. was my half-sister. I see. And it was her mother's ashes. Yeah. And I assumed the baby that died. Yeah. And... Uh, so somehow my father, there is a, in Koma, a Japanese cemetery, and he had the ashes buried at Koma, but we couldn't afford to buy a tombstone or a marker. So my father decided that um, he would get one of these heavy log type pieces of wood like they have in Japan that they write the person's name, the wooden marker. And so it was Sumi. He wrote her name and everything on it. And then my father and I were going to carry that to Coma because when we moved to uh, San Francisco, we no longer had a car. And my brother, my older brother, had a newspaper route, so um, he felt uh, the next one in order was me. So I carried all the tools to bury this marker, and he carried the marker, and we started from San Francisco on the streetcar, and then the bus, 
And then when the bus let us off, we walked the rest of the way to the Koma Japanese Cemetery. And with the equipment we had, the axe and the shovel and everything, wow. we buried the marker. And when we went back to check it after the war, it was still there, wow. marking the grave. And then another thing my father had to do was he was put in charge of the Reformed Church uh, storage area. And anything of value that we didn't sell or we couldn't carry to the cab, uh, we would store at the church. It was the uh, church, Re Japanese Reformed Church on uh, Post Street. Mm -hmm. And my father was in charge of uh, helping uh, divide up the social hall in sections. Uh, it wasn't even the size of this table for each family. Uh, so that each family would have a section to uh, put their valuables. But most of those places that were used as storage, unless they were private, uh, they were, um, everything was taken. After the war, my father and I went back and when we put all the stuff and everybody who was member of the church and if you didn't have any place to put your things mm -hmm. uh, they were welcome to use any empty spaces and it was a very neat division for each family to put like pictures their albums and I asked my father if we could put our dolls our big American dolls that we got, baby dolls, and uh, my sewing machine. And so he managed to get it in that space. And when we came back from the war, that social hall was a big heap they had broken in. And I found uh, my sewing machine, and I was thrilled about that. But when I opened up the uh, machine part uh, the sewing machine was gone only the cabinet was left mm -hmm. and uh, the way they broke into our church was they took apart the string set because there was a playground that belonged uh, to the church mm -hmm. and in those days the playground uh, swing set was made of metal so they took apart the swing set and used the top uh, metal uh, pipe to use as a ramming rod to break down the doors of the church and uh, this all happened while you were at the camp yes and, but uh, we got that's... when I was uh, sick in camp uh, the church was turned back to the white uh, congregation, and the minister was white, and he came into Topaz to visit 
the Japanese American who used to belong to that church. And he asked me, since I was sick, what would I like? And I said, I would like my doll. And uh, so somehow he managed to get my doll, and he brought it back into the camp for me. And so I still have that doll downstairs. And uh, that's one of the things that I have that's left from the camp. And then another thing we had to do was pack our suitcase that we were going to carry. And being 14 years old, I first packed all my hobby stuff and everything. And then you realize you have to repack it and not take those things, but only take essentials. And I found out the essentials were your clothes. (laughs) So I packed my clothes. Each of us packed our own things. And then uh, it made us more ready to move on. Well, Mary, I think that's really powerful for me to hear because you know you were saying your parents uh, were getting ready to go to the camp after they got the notice right yes and they thought there might be a chance you know they had heard rumors that parents and children might be separated yeah so there was that uncertainty but I feel like with a lot of stories of family separation for example with refugee crises or during the war it almost happens overnight, so there's no time for parents or families to prepare. Yes, but we were one of the last ones to be notified to enter. Yeah, but I mean, do you think there was a sense of, I feel like a lot of articles that talk about this, they say, you know, there's this thing in Japanese culture, this, you know, shoganai, shikataganai, yes. right? You can't, there's nothing you can do about it, so you just gotta follow the authority. But I, I just wanna dig a little deeper and, see if was there some kind of sense of resistance in your with your parents of you know why are we going along with this plan of that that might separate our family or you know did they think it might it might uh end and just be temporary uh so is that why they were going along with it or no uh do you know what your parents were thinking in my case our family uh they wanted to prepare, prepare in case we were stranded away from our parents. So the, all these instructions were given to us of how we should look after our younger brothers and sisters to make sure that everybody at least will be put together. And that's why they told us our family history. and. Uh, We were fortunate that, or unfortunate, because uh, early on after 9066 was posted, which was February, Mm -hmm. and we weren't taken until May, and that gave us those months to get ready, whereas other families were taken shortly after that, and that's why they were put in the horse stalls and topaz. Whereas if you came in later, they yeah. had they couldn't put all of us in horse stalls, so they had to make temporary barracks 
in mm. Canfran, which was our uh, waiting place for the permanent camps to be made. So we were fortunate that we were one of the later families to leave because they started with the outer areas and they kept closing in. And so when the day came that the notice went up that we have to sign up for the camp, my father wanted to take care of these two widowed families in the church. So he decided the safest way to get the three families to go together so my father could manage three families was that one would sign up before my sister who was signing us up and then one after. Well, that night before we went to camp, Western Union went through Japanese town and we could see the uh, bicycle Western Union guys going from this house to that house. And we didn't know what was happening because they didn't come to our house. But when we got ready to get on the buses, we realized what those Western Union telegrams were. In our case, it went to every the family that registered before my sister and the one after my sister were told to go to a different assembly center. And we never saw those families again. So we had enough time to get ready. In a way, it was bad in the fact that my father and sister could no longer work in the beginning part because of the curfew and they were limited because by May, by end of March, I couldn't go to middle school and the only ones who were able to go to school were the ones in elementary school because that was only so many blocks away. And we, my sister and I, used to walk to middle school, but it was too far as far as the curfew was concerned. And by the time we left in May, the curfew was only a few blocks. And so, uh, and by then we were running out of money and whatever savings we had, which was little, the government imposed shortly after 9066, a rule that in San Francisco area, and I don't know about the rest of California or other parts, uh, you could only withdraw so much per month. Yeah. So the length of time that we were getting poorer and poorer. Yeah, and they only, after three years at the Topaz camp, they only gave you like... $25, $25, is that yes, right? Yes, but they gave you army blankets and $25. Yeah. I mean, I know it's hard to condense or just briefly, you know, talk about three years of your life, especially at a time uh, yeah, at somewhere like the Topaz Camp. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, uh, yeah, your, your time, your experience at, at the Topaz Camp. Um... Yeah, but you, we went to uh, Tamfran first, the mm-hmm. assembly centers. There were 16 of those. Uh, 
but my husband's family decided they were a farming family in Gilroy area and a bunch of them decided to leave the west coast of California because there was an order before we were taken into the camps. If you move further into California, you will not be taken. So Ray's family moved east. And they, because if you're a farming family, you could always go farm for somebody. But if you are a skilled laborer, you can't all of a sudden leave that city and find employment somewhere in the eastern part of California. But yeah. it, before the executive order was completed, they decided to rescind the part about having people who had moved that they won't go to camp. They decided all of California would yeah. be under the order. So Ray's family and other families who moved were sent to a camp that wasn't the camp for their area in San Jose, because the San Jose people went to Heart Mountain. I Those see. people that Ray's family moved to were mm -hmm. sent to Tule Lake. Mm. So families were separated as a result of that as well. Yeah. As a result of being arbitrarily sent yes. to different camps. But my, my, what really struck me was I was reading about the camps and how the U.S. government uh, officials thought about the camps. And it's almost like they didn't keep it top secret because they wanted to show that this was like a you know all american yes. like a model that you know they wanted to show that japanese americans were actually model citizens yeah, supposedly learning from the camp and having a great time and i'm just wondering if this was actually the case of no but or, you, why why do you think they decided well, to pre the, present it in this way they represented us that way by not showing the guard towers or the barbed wires, because the government regulation was to show the barracks, never the surrounding areas. So it looks peaceful. But if you wanted a true picture of the camps, you had to show the guard towers and the barbed wires. But that was always one of the rules. You do, don't show that. It looks like everybody's happy. Yeah. I mean, and is is there anything else you would like to share from your time um, at, at Topaz? You know, you were talking about um, earlier how you had no sense, you had lost your sense of privacy and identity and... Yeah, it started in um, there. Yeah. the day you were put on the bus because you lost your identity by be, becoming a number. Our family was 22416. I was the letter E because of the place of birth rank in the family. And so you were tagged and you had to wear your tag. And so that's the beginning of losing your identity is to give you a number. But, and, and at the beginning of, you know, in 1942, in, in May, 
um, or, or when you first came to the camp, you were with your family, your whole, uh, your parents and your four siblings. Um, but you mentioned that by the time, um, you know, the war was over and you got out of the camp, there was only, was it four, four, four. of you that remained? So what, what happened well, to uh, your, the rest of your siblings? My that, sister, Lily, uh, one thing about the permanent camp was they wanted to have you uh, eventually leave the camps. Otherwise, we would end up like American Indians, uh, not being able to settle outside. So if you were recommended for a job and had a job, or if a university or a school accepted you as a student, you could leave the camp. So they encouraged people to leave the camp. So my sister was engaged uh, to a, someone from Fort, who was fighting in the 442, whose uh, brother or sister-in-law was in uh, Washington, D.C. So they got her a government job and asked her to come. So that gave her clearance. Mm -hmm. But they wouldn't give, the camp wouldn't give her Eastern Defense clearance. They would only give her clearance to Chicago. So she left and stayed in Chicago until they decided she could go to Washington, which was about three to six months, I think. So she went to work for the government? Yeah, in D.C. And then... uh, There was the questionnaire that happened in camp. And by the time it came to our camp, uh, it was mumbling and everything, but not uh, outrage like other camps. But question 27 and question 28 uh, were the main things that was the most upsetting in the camp to mm-hmm. me because I felt that I proved my loyalty by going quietly into the camps. Yeah. But then for them to question my loyalty to the United States was just too much. But my father said, as a family unit, we all have to say yes. And shortly after that, then uh, some of the youth uh, decided that they would volunteer for the army. And so they left for the army. But then uh, the government started the draft in the army um, in the camps. So my brother was drafted right after high school, Mm -hmm. and so he had to leave, so that left two of them gone. So he was drafted from the camp? From the camps. So he volunteered to join the army and then... No, he didn't volunteer, he was drafted. There was a first group that volunteered, but the second group was drafted from the camps, 
if they did not go to uh, the army, then they were uh, sent to Tule Lake. And some of them were uh, put in prison and everything else. So if you were drafted, you went into the army. And that was a very sad period. And I always mentioned that I think the government should have done more for the draftees because they were young men who were going to go serve the U.S. But when they departed from the camp, I still remember my parents on one side, the barbed wire, saying goodbye to my brother. And I always felt the government could have done more and taken the parents, at least, yeah. out of the camps and let them say a proper goodbye. Now, if you volunteered, you chose to go on your own, but the draftees were all these young men who were drafted yeah. out of camp. And one of, another sad thing about the camp is when you walk through between the barracks, uh, when you saw a gold star in the window because it meant someone had died in the service of their country, but their parents were still in the camps. And there was a lot of blue stars after the draft went in. So that was too gone out of my family. Did you, were you able to say goodbye to your brother when he was drafted? Yeah, Sorry. but on the other side of the barbed wires. Yeah. And I felt that we should, they should have opened the gates and let us go out and say a proper goodbye. Yeah. But that didn't happen in Topaz. I don't know if it happened in other camps, but I know when my brother was drafted, it did not happen. Unfortunately, you, you were able to um, reunite with both your siblings then, right? After the yeah, war. Yeah, after the war, yeah. eventually. My sister mm-hmm. never came back to the West Coast. My When my brother was discharged from the Army, we had already been settled. Uh, in a home and then uh, the reason I left was the education in camp was not good and I was uh, uh, I wanted to go to college my uh, parents always taught us that all five of us kids will go to higher education and uh, my father's nephew who my father sent through school promised he would send one of us five to medical school like my father did for him but he was sent back after the war on the group zone he was one of the first to return to Japan mm-hmm. so he never followed through so my father sent all five of those kids to higher education. But um, in camp, by the time I became a senior, they wanted me to start ninth grade over because I had used up too many of the academic courses and Mm -hmm. they said there wasn't enough. So I had missed my part of my ninth grade from being uh, interned. 
And so they suggested I start ninth grade over. So I was starting with ninth grade courses again. So my father found an engineer in camp. I don't know where my father found it, but he was willing to teach me higher math mm-hmm. and how to use the slide rule and everything. And uh, then I studied on my own. And so the opportunity came in uh, the winter of 44 when Cal and uh, another private school sent in uh, students to invite us back because they said California was going to reopen in January of 45. And that's when uh, Cal was on a three-semester basis because it was during the war. Mm -hmm. So California opened up in January, and I started Cal in February Mm. without ninth grade education or a 12th grade education (laughs) so uh i was the third one to leave the family so it left my parents my younger brother and sister to leave camp together when topaz closed september 31 1945 wow and and that is i i guess that even though you had to go through family separation and such difficult times, I'm I'm glad you were able to reunite in the end. Yes, yes. And you know, leave the camp and reunite with your siblings and to see your parents again. But do you know of any other stories of families who weren't able to see their families again? Oh yes, as a result, Eddie, of, you know, because, because of, the, camp? of uh, the questionnaire twenty seven and twenty eight, families were broken up because some of the men said. They will serve, others said they won't serve. Mm -hmm. And so those families were completely separated and they weren't put together again. Yeah, speaking of the loyalty question, 27 and 28, you know, if I remember correctly, 27 refers to fighting. Are you willing to serve serve the the U.S. Army? And 28 is the elite. uh, Are you willing to give up your uh, allegiance to the Japanese emperor, which meant our parents would be without a country because they could not become, by law, U.S. citizens. I see. So then they had to change the questionnaire 28 a little bit so our parents could answer it. Yeah, that just reminded me, you know, I actually uh, only became a U.S. citizen. I naturalized last year. Uh Uh-huh. And at the naturalization ceremony, they make us, uh, we have to take an oath of allegiance. Yes. And it's, I remember it very clearly, you have to, actually, I brought a copy right here, so I don't have to recall it, but it says, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom, or which I have heretofore have been a subject or citizen, that I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by the law. So, and and it ends with, and that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. So help me God. 
And then, to be honest, I, I mean, I guess it's, it doesn't matter anymore because I'm already a citizen, but I had a really hard time seeing that oath. Yeah. Well, you and could it's a lot to ask. Yeah, you could imagine our parents being told to give up all allegiance because yeah. they could not, they would be people without a country. Right. So you could see why some of the camps there were rioting and problems. Yeah. And it was a very difficult period of time. So I think it's very uh, timely again that, you know, you grew up born and raised in California, went to Cal, mm -hmm. and um, I was just reading the news, and just a couple days ago, the California State Assembly, they passed yes. this resolution, right, I think unanimously, yes. that apologized yes. uh, formally yes. to the Japanese Americans yeah. for the camps. And the first and one who called me was my granddaughter, Carolyn. She says, you finally got this, one of these apologies. Yeah, and you know, there's there's another one, right? The famous the Civil Liberties Act yeah, yes. under President Reagan yes. in '88. But I, I'm just curious, what you, how these apologies make you feel? Well, are, the apologies you know, were very important, but uh, they said unless we got this monetary, it doesn't mean anything because. Uh, this country looks at everything through monies, and uh, therefore that's why they asked for the 20000 But by 1988, and finally when that 20000 came, most of us were settled financially and otherwise. It would have meant so much more if they gave us a little more money when we left camp, not $25. Because even in those days, $25 didn't get you anything. And what is so critical about the 20000 is that there was no help for us when we left the camps. Yeah. And things were more miserable after the leaving camp than Topaz or prior to getting ready. It was the worst time for most of the people and the emphasis is always on getting ready for camp and going to camp, but hardly any emphasis on what happened to us after camp. Yeah. And if there was any financial aid, then it would have made us able to find our way much easier because discrimination by then had been rampant. Yeah. And uh, the ones who really needed the 20,000, like our my father, he was gone, and most of the Issaids who really suffered and were trying to reestablish the family, they were, uh, had died in the meantime. And so when you're giving the 20,000 
to survivors, the children who were born in camp would get the 20,000 and their parents who really needed it would get not 20,000 but $25. Yeah, Mary, what what really struck me as well, I was uh, last weekend, as I told you, I was in San Francisco. Yes. In uh, Japantown, actually, and I went to, I think it was the 71st uh, National Day of Remembrance. 78th. 78th National Day of Remembrance Ceremony mm-hmm. uh, Bay, for the Bay Area. Yeah. And it was really powerful for me and inspiring, not just because of um, the stories that people shared the firsthand accounts uh-huh. um, and how that history was remembered, but also the theme was, you know, to make sure that this history is not repeated again. Yes. And I think what I've just noticed is the Japanese American community, you know, especially you. Yeah, I mean, you are retired now you're you know more I don't want to disclose your age but well, I'm 92 you're 92 <laughs> years old and you know people I feel like most people your age can take a break and have it easy and there's no they feel there's no reason for them to need to speak yeah. out so what really struck me was the solidarity of the Japanese American community yes in San Francisco and DC, you know, all over the country. And, you know, there's the, uh, two for solidarity event coming up in, in DC outside the white house in June, um, with what's going on more recently. Yes. Right. With, uh, families being separated at, um, at the U S Mexico border. So, I, I mean, I just wanted to ask you from a personal level, why do you think, what, what is, kind of motivating you, causing you to continue to speak out about your story and about this issue? The main reason is is that you should learn from history, but this country does not learn from its past history. And the only way to get that across and hopefully to teach them, teach them so it won't occur again is to have survivors speak. And there aren't too many survivors. Uh, There are the young ones who don't remember camp and the ones that were in their 20s who were just starting their profession, they're mostly gone. And one time I spoke at a church and realized one of my older sister's friends who was in camp with us was in the audience listening to me. And so I came home and told my husband, I have to call her. I shouldn't be speaking. She should be speaking. It's her church. And before I could call her, she called me to thank me for speaking. And I asked her, why are you thanking me why aren't you speaking she says it was too difficult for her to speak about camp so anyone older than I am who survived the camp they lost much more personally I lost things by the family but these were young adults and you have to remember most of the parents of our 
of the children were at the prime of their occupation and they never recovered. And I don't want to see another group of people having to deal with this. It's completely uncalled for. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just so grateful uh, for for people like you who, um, you know, not only speak out on behalf of your own community, but on others as well. Uh, it's more yeah. important now with the other who need help. And they may not know that this country has done it before, and the only way they'll learn is to hear it from us. Yeah. But there's very few of us left who are vocal enough to speak. Quite a few of them will never speak. And like my husband, his mother was born here, so she took care of everything. And so he didn't even know about the questionnaire or anything. And he wanted to know why I speak about the questionnaire and why it's so important to know about it. And uh, so he only had to uh, make sure he was fed in camp. And he says the only time he realized things weren't going very well in Topaz, they had the no-no boys separated from the regular internees there. He says when he saw the tanks come into the camp, and they were gassed to separate, break up everybody. He says that's the only thing he remembers negatively. And so he was asked to speak with the veterans group, the Japanese Americans veterans group, mm -hmm. as a veteran. But he says, my wife remembers camp yeah. and the aftermath. and if you're interested in hearing more stories of family separation please follow us on instagram at divided families podcast if you enjoyed this episode please rate us on apple podcasts and you can follow us on your preferred streaming platform thanks as always to flannel albert for the music and see you next time